So last week, last week we identified that the supreme God of our age is the self. After Christianity recedes from the picture, that is the only true form of devotion that can survive. That doesn't mean that religion in all its various forms and manifestations has utterly disappeared. Clearly it hasn't. But rather that if religion is to survive in our day and age, it too must bend to the authority of the sovereign individual. In other words, religions that make demands, that impose discipline, that issue orders, cannot thrive in our climate. Instead, to make do, religion must affirm and support and maintain our preconceived desires. So religion, broadly speaking, not just Christianity, but religion in general, remains, but only in a cheapened, watered-down form. It exists, in other words, not to call us to something higher that is out of ourselves to higher aspirations or whatever it may be, but it exists to confirm us in our prior commitments, right? It exists to affirm that which we already have. So it's what we called intuitional religion as opposed to institutional religion, intuitional religion. So allow me to reread a quote from last week. This is Tara Isabella Burton. She says, the remixed reject authority, institution, creed, and moral universalism. They value intuition, personal feeling, and experiences. They write their own scripts about how the universe and human beings operate. The remixed don't want to receive doctrine, to assent automatically to a creed. They want to choose, and more often than not, purchase the spiritual path that feels more authentic more meaningful to them. So Burton, in this quote, explains the titanic shift, again, from institutional religion to intuitional religion. Whereas in times past, religion was a matter of authority. I'm speaking generically here, assenting to a creed, submitting to an institution, obeying a morality. Now in our day, It's a matter of authenticity, the expression of one's desires and taste. It has essentially become a commodity. Religion is a good, either to be traded or else discarded, depending on its usefulness to us. It is, in other words, again, a term that we coined last week, bespoke religion, which is to say custom-made or made-to-order. So just like the things we buy, the entertainment we consume, the causes that we take up, so the religion we adhere to, again, in our day and age, is simply a matter of personal fancy, what feels right, what feels best, according to my desires. So that is what we talked about last week. And against this dire situation, subjugated to the God of the self, we set the first commandment. It calls us to have no other gods, even ourselves. 
It calls us to greater diligence and renunciation for the sake of obedience to God in Christ. A more arduous, inflexible commitment is simply the only way forward. But that is merely one side of the coin. It's entirely possible that hearing the summons of the first commandment, that we give ourselves in absolute devotion to God, and yet still be deluded in regard to who He is and what He requires from us. So we can say, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to give you everything I have. And yet, we may very possibly still be serving a God of our own making. And so this is where the second commandment comes in. In fact, in some traditions, the second commandment isn't the second commandment at all. If you grew up Roman Catholic or Lutheran, you're familiar with this. For what us is the second commandment, for them is but a continuation of the first. In other words, in their understanding, the prohibitions, have no other gods, and make no idols are virtually synonymous, right? God, idol, same thing. Our tradition, however, numbers the commandments differently and counts them as two separate things. John Barton, a Protestant scholar, he puts it this way, that no gods besides Yahweh are to be worshipped says something about the source of divine power. Only one such source is to be acknowledged. That no images are to be made says something about the character of the divinity. It cannot be captured in any physical representation. The points are related, he says, but they are two points, not one. Or to frame the matter more succinctly, we might say, the first commandment is against worshiping the wrong God, and the second commandment is against worshiping God the wrong way. In other words, we need the first commandment to summon us from our lethargy back toward God in honest commitment. And we need the second commandment to make sure that the God we commit ourselves to is the God of the Scriptures, that we obey Him, that we give ourselves to Him in truth. So, again, whereas the first commandment is about our will, calling us to sincere devotion to none but God in Christ, the second commandment is about our mind. First commandment is about our will. Second commandment is about our mind, calling us to serve Him in spirit and in truth as he actually is, and as he actually requires. So, we admitted last week that this thing we've been calling intuitional religion has made headway within the church, such that even for ourselves, the self sometimes has become the secret motivation of our piety and devotion, right? That Christ becomes a means to an end, we said. And when that is the case... The result is that our Christianity becomes indistinguishable from ourselves, both personally and culturally. Quite simply, intuitional religion makes us idolaters. Anne Lamott captures the spirit. She says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. In turning God 
into another market commodity, another thing to be bought and sold, another, another avenue of self-expression, what happens is that he becomes ours, right? Our possession, under our control, within our grasp. It's not he who commands, but we who command him. And so in picking and choosing, in mixing and remixing the faith to abide by our standards, it has, in some quantifiable measure, lost its integrity and character. It has become, in other words, simply another expression of one's personality, or else another manifestation of the dominant culture. And so such is the danger And really, this is the one thing that this entire message is about this morning. That we can maintain our commitment to Christ. We can maintain all our piety with all its trappings, but in a fundamentally idolatrous form, serving a God of our own making. But more on that later. In the meantime, let's delve more deeply into the rationale uh, that the scriptures give prohibiting um, all idols. So our principal text this morning is Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, in its most basic sense, the second commandment forbids the use of idols or images in worship. Now, not idols and images generically, as in all the pictures that we have within our sanctuary. It's not forbidding that. If you go to the creation of the temple um, and the instructions that God gave to Moses and to Bezalel, and it's full of images. It's specifically talking about, rather, images of God, not images in general. And so as far as we can tell, ancient pagans did not literally believe the idol, be it a statue in a temple or a household figurine was their god, but rather for them, the idol functioned as a mediator, an object through which the divine presence could be brought near. It was the focal point, so to speak, the hot spot for the deity's presence on earth. And typically, such idols were fashioned after the form and likeness of created realities sometimes human, sometimes animal, sometimes a unholy mixture of the two. And although the idol was not the divinity, that was true only literally, functionally. In the strictures of ancient religion, the idol was the divinity. So not literally, they didn't literally believe that, but functionally it was their God. And in fact, the commandment forbids us from rendering worship to the idols. Now, that literally means to fall down or to prostrate oneself. So this immaterial spiritual being, what they called gods, what we refer to as demons, as mutinous spiritual authorities, 
this immaterial God was served in a very real material idol. So, so the idol was served meals. That's what sacrifices were. They would cut them up. It's like a barbecue. They'd cut them up, they'd eat some, and then they'd burn the rest to the God. It would, they would serve at meals. It was clean because the smoke would rise and it would, um, it would tarnish the idol, and so they would clean it. Uh, they would bow to it and they would worship it. So functionally, right, they're indistinguishable, the God and the idol. Now, such was the common fare throughout the entire ancient world. All peoples had their temples, their idols, and their priests that served them. All peoples, that is, except for the Jews. The Lord explicitly forbids depicting him in the form of created realities. So the most common form of ancient devotion is conspicuously absent in Israel. And so a question arises, why? What is this all about? There's not a straightforward answer provided in our passage, but it can be found in another. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15, and 19, 15 through 19. Moses says, So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord your God spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image or an idol for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven and be drawn away to worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So, the people saw no form. That is, they saw no figure or likeness of God. Israel saw smoke, fire, and lightning. But as for God himself, nothing. His form was kept from their eyes, lest seeing it, they die. And because Israel saw no form of God, they are therefore forbidden from making idols that depict God after the forms of the world. So they saw no form, therefore they're to make no forms. Worship of the true God cannot include graven images or idols patterned after the um, form of any human, male or female, any animal on the earth, any winged bird in the sky, anything that creeps on the ground, any fish in the waters, nor any of the hosts of heaven. Now, that list is meant to signify all of creation. In fact, it's the same list we found find in the creation narrative. So God says nothing. Don't, don't try anything to um, depict me after. No likeness whatsoever. In fact, as the other nations began to learn about the Hebrew people, they were really quite surprised that they had no idol in their temple. And it was a sort of strange respect that they had for the Israelites because they really were unlike any other people. There was no image of the God. You would go in there and there was a throne, the Ark of the Covenant, but it was empty. It was an empty throne. So, although the logic of the commandment is simple, Israel did not see any form. Therefore, it's not to make any forms. 
there is a deeper, more profound rationale. It's not simply that God has a form, but we're forbidden from seeing it, but rather that his form transcends our understanding. We are unable to see it. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, Here he more plainly declares what his nature is and what kind of worship with which he is to be honored. In other words, we may not presume to form any carnal idea of him. The purport of the commandment, therefore, is that he will not have his legitimate worship profaned by superstitious rites. So, in forbidding images, don't make me after any likeness on the earth or in heaven or under the earth, the true God is declaring to us his nature. He's declaring to us what he is not. He is decidedly not like any one thing in the universe. He cannot be depicted or imagined according to the forms of this world because nothing in the created order can rightly communicate or signify the eternal nature of God. An idol, say we depict God not after something small and insignificant, but let's say we try to compare him to the vastness of the universe itself. itself. To do that is only to dilute, to diminish, and to deform him. There is nothing on earth or in the skies above or in the waters below that we can rightly compare to the Lord our God. And so in his speech to the Athenians, which we considered in brief last week, the apostle elaborates. He says, In him, this is the Lord God, we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. So, here the Apostle Paul points out the absurdity into which pagan thought fell. How can the divine nature, from which all things spring, and from which all things are sustained, be like the things it created? It cannot. As fine and as beautiful as gold and silver are, as exalted and sublime as the art and thought of man may be, they cannot compare to the divine nature, let alone capture it or be an accurate representation of it. God, the creator and sustainer of all things, eternal, uh, immortal, incorruptible, positively transcends his handiwork. And so we might ask, why does the second commandment forbid any and all images of the Lord God? The answer is simple, because he is transcendent. His glory and his majesty and his holiness far surpass what can be communicated and known through the forms of created reality. Thus, the utter foolishness of image-making becomes clear. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. The prophets just going to town on the pagan nations for their worship pattering and picturing God after our concepts and ideas and forms is to reduce him from divine 
to merely something creaturely. Hear the psalmist's accusation against his own people. Psalm 106, verses 19 and 21, 19 through 21. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Right? How absurd. They turned their God, who had done great things for them, into the image of an ox that eats grass. Right? Aaron literally told the people, Here is the Lord your God, as he pointed to the golden calf. From creator to creature, from sustainer to sustained, from glorious to a mere beast. They exchanged the good, the beautiful, the true for an infinitely lesser earthly reality. But, and here's the thing, idolatry at its heart is more insidious than that. It's not merely that we reduce the divine nature to the creation, but that we reduce the divine nature to our creation to our creation. And no prophet takes aim against this more mercilessly and more ruthlessly than Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 44, verses 18 through 20. They do not know, nor do they understand. For he is smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say... I have burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? So idolatry what the second commandment forbids in the last estimate is simply the creation of one's own God after their likeness, according to their understanding, in line with their desires. It's not divine, but merely perishable material crafted by an artisan. Half he uses to burn in the fire and to cook his meat, and the other half he forms into a god and bows before it. And though worshipers might bow down before the idol and acknowledge it that it has some great power, it really is themselves that they are worshiping all along. Their idols were the work of human hands, the work of a craftsman, according to their own thoughts. And as such, Their idols provided no power genuinely independent of that which created them. They're worshiping the work of their own hands, a god of their own imagination, which at last brings us to our day. The abomination that the second commandment forbids is not a reality trapped in the past, a practice that is forever gone with the ancient pagan religions. It remains, even for the church, a very real thing. Though we do not create physical idols, the scriptures show that an idol is simply a man-made construction. It doesn't have to be in a physical form. It can be an idea, 
It can be an ideology or something else that is imposed upon the true God. And so our fundamentally modern version of idolatry is to rob God of his transcendence and freedom in order to make him abide by our agendas and our dreams. Well, how so? This is painfully obvious in our society. I sometimes wonder if Christianity in its full integrity, not submitted to other outside influences, has ever made it to these shores. Truly, there are as many variations of the faith as there are people. Remember, bespoke religion, made-to-order religion. I'll craft it according to my own desires. So would you like a God who affirms your progressive woke agenda, affirming every cause and forbidding none? There's a church for that. Or possibly you're a red-blooded American. Are you looking for a God who confirms you in your national and political idolatry, whose word is your party's platform? There's a church for that. Or maybe it's more personal. Are you seeking a God who supports your preferred sexual practices? There's a church for that. Or are you after a divinity to bestow his blessing upon your greed and worldliness? There's a church for that. Right, you get the point. Whatever it is, we don't have to worry. There's a church for that. There isn't a fancy or an appetite that we can't find a version of the faith to support it. It's all there. And that's idolatry. That's the blending and consolidating of our predetermined purposes with the purpose of God. We set the agenda and we say, Lord, this is how it's going to be. And against this, right, the innumerable idols that we proffer as true religion, we must set the transcendence of God. We must, like Moses himself, smash our self-conjured idols to bits with the sledgehammer of God's absolute difference from the world he created. When God becomes too intimately associated with our ideologies, too tangled up and indistinguishable from our dreams, the only thing to do is to march out the second commandment, to remember that God is not like us or any other created things. As the Apostle Paul declares, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 35. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Listen, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that he might be paid back, that it might be paid back to him again? And so here's what I think the second commandment is telling us. In order to free ourselves from idolatry, from our corruptions that we impose upon the faith, we have to learn to unsay God's name. We have to unlearn what we have learned. That is to question and scrutinize everything that we take for granted about him. To take our God and to judge him against this God who is beyond finding out. Now, the faith is received, it's passed on from one generation to another. It's a doctrine. There is doctrine that's transmitted from one generation to the next. And so might it be that some of what we presume to be true about God and Christianity is merely that? 
presumption? Maybe so. When we become too complacent, too comfortable, too sure in our thoughts about God and what he requires of us, we are on the fast track toward idolatry. When we bring the Lord down and we fail to understand that he doesn't abide by any of our rules, we're on the fast track to idolatry. And so our problem is this, that we conceptualize God as simply a bigger, more cosmic version of ourselves. He isn't really that foreign to us, but simply a greater version of us. His attributes, whatever they are, love and might and wisdom, are fundamentally like ours, only magnified to an infinite degree. So God's wisdom is like ours, just infinitely greater, and so on and so forth. Thus, after we've pushed our intellect to the limit, after we've stretched our concepts to their breaking point, we've only arrived at a superman, a massively inflated version of ourselves, but not God himself, not God himself. And therein lies the grave, the grave mistake. It's not a matter of quantity. Again, it's not that God is like us, just bigger. It's a matter of quality. God is not merely quantitatively superior to us, but qualitatively superior to us. He's an entirely different kind of reality from ourselves. He is reality itself. Again, hear the prophet Isaiah's inspired words. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Isaiah 40, 18. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Isaiah 40, 25. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? Isaiah 46, 5. For I am God and there is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. Isaiah 46, 9. So there, there's nothing. We can't compare him. We can't bring him down to our level. And the moment we try to do that is when we fall into idolatry. God is incomprehensible and incomparable, but not unknowable. There's a vast difference between those two things. God can be known, and we'll elaborate more on that next week, but before we can come to know him as, we is, or as he is, before we can, can say this is who God is, and not merely a figment of our imagination, we must unlearn what we know about him and come to him as the one who utterly surpasses all thought, imagination, and vision. So what then? Let's wrap up with a few practical concerns. The second commandment teaches us to unlearn our thoughts about God before we can learn about him again. It sets his transcendence above our worldly ideas so that we would think rightly of God and not impose upon him any worldly agenda or idea or any such thing. So we have to unlearn to relearn. And so when that first step is completed, when we see God's transcendence and we say, Lord, I truly have no idea what you are like, who you are, you're beyond all my thoughts, then, then the next step can begin, which is listening. The second commandment makes a contrast between hearing and sight, between eye and between ear. So Moses, recalling the Lord's descent upon Sinai and instructing his people, says thus, Deuteronomy 11, or 4, 11 and 2. 
12. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So God does not reveal himself to human eyes. There's no form. He's the unseen God who speaks. He is word. They only heard a voice. Now in the scriptures, eyes are the organs of judgment and scrutiny. So God, the creation account says, saw and it was good. That is, he rendered a judgment upon his newly minted creation. He saw it and he said, it's very good. It is a good thing. Likewise, Psalm chapter 11 says the following. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. So with our eyes, we scrutinize something, we judge it. We assume a stance of criticism, command, and control upon visible things. Think of Adam. He brings them, God brings all the animals before Adam. Adam sees them and he names them, right? He renders this judgment upon them. So with visible things, we test them with our eyes, so to speak. But here's the thing. We don't see God. We don't control him or ever come to adopt a stance of criticism toward him, but he, us. Instead, we hear God. And hearing in the scriptures is virtually synonymous with obedience. In the Hebrew, it's the word Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, which is most often translated as simply to obey or to listen. So to hear is to receive a command. So Moses says, you didn't see anything, but you heard. You heard. Martin Luther even called the ear the Christian organ. This is how we receive the Lord. We do not walk by sight, but by faith. And faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So, we cannot see God apart from his revelation, apart from his own declaration about himself. Our thoughts and ideas and concepts are not only human and not divine, but they're also tainted by sin. There's a double barrier that we must overcome that we left to ourselves cannot overcome. Romans 1, I'm going to get to in just a minute, Paul says before, although the attributes of God were clearly demonstrated, his wisdom, power, they were not thankful, so on and so forth, and they changed God's glory. We can't see, we can't render things rightly on our own. We have, to, we have to hear. And so our attempts to see God must always be distorted images, unworthy of his glory, his majesty, and nature. And again, as I said, such is the apostle's complaint in Romans 1. Mankind, though understanding God's reality and power, refused to honor him and to give thanks to him, to the effect that he says... Romans 1, 22 and 23, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. So in all our wisdom, our religious reasoning about the divine nature, we've proved ourselves to be fools, never arriving at the truth, but instead corrupting it. Having only our human concepts and ideas, 
we cannot see God properly. His incorruptible nature is out of reach, and we can only pull it within reach by corrupting it in comparison to man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So in the end, the only way to see God is to hear him. He isn't the object of our investigation, to whom we can apply, apply the scientific method, who can be studied and dissected by us. But he is the high and lofty one, the, only, the one that can only be um, apprehended through faith. And our world, which is ever increasingly mediated through screens and images, we must maintain the primacy of the ear, Rather than speaking, let us listen. Rather than talking, let us receive. Rather than grasping, let us be grasped. We're, we are not in control of the process. God is. And so we must put aside our presuppositions, our prejudices, our preconceived ideas, and let God speak and have our ears open to listen. Let's pray.